Welcome to the Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli, along with my friend Barry Schuster, the founding editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. How you doing, Barry? I'm doing well, Chris. Thanks very much for asking. I'm looking forward to talking to our special guest today and finding out how they got in the restaurant business, why they got in the restaurant business, and hearing some pearls of wisdom from them uh, that would be useful to our, our listeners today. Absolutely. And we're going to have some fun because we've got a really good show lined up. So uh, grab a drink, make yourself comfortable, and welcome to the Corner Booth. Barry, I think we're really, really uh, lucky to have uh, in our studio today Russell Yabara. Russell is the creator and director of a couple of very, very successful brands, Gringo Mexican Restaurants and Chimichangas. And so, Russell, welcome to the Corner Booth. Thank you for having me. Great to meet you, Russell. Um, before we get into your the current status of your business, which is quite impressive, can you um, tell our listeners about how you got into the restaurant business, what motivated you to start down this path um i was uh i was born with a taco in my hand so <laughs> you know um i grew up in the in- industry my dad uh, started a chain in laporte baytown area called el toro and they still operate today uh my brothers run that company but uh, that's why i started washing dishes uh busing tables and working in the kitchen and that's kind of where i got my start in the early years when you were working with your dad um were there some uh key things that you picked up through that experience that uh, have you've carried forth into your current career? Uh, quite a few, actually. I was very, very fortunate to grow up in the presence of a, uh, a dreamer and a visionary. Uh, the things that my dad was doing back in the 70, 60s and 70s, um, I, I look back and I just shake my head because there wasn't Google back then. And whatever made him think of these ideas is phenomenal. Uh, when you think about it, for one, uh, he had a central kitchen where he processed a lot of his items for his restaurants, and he would ship them out on refrigerated trucks. But in that commissary, he would make his own tamales, his own tortillas, corn and flour, and um, and just just and he would also buy in bulk and reship to his restaurants, whether it was paper goods, printed goods. At one time, I remember going to Mexico with him to look at an avocado farm uh, outside of Mexico City. And this is before you could import him in the United States. Sure. And he had to find out the hard way, although he's lucky he didn't actually seal the deal and purchase some the real estate. But he wanted to buy an avocado farm. I remember stopping off at a at a plant in Monterey, outside Monterey, Mexico, a jalapeno plant, pickle plant. And he almost came close to buying that. And this is way back before, you know, nachos and jalapenos took off the way they did. But uh, but he he had hired a gentleman by the name of Juan Martinez, which was his cook and his chef. And he was an actual actual chef. And uh, Juan Martinez came from Monterey, and he came over around the same time several other chefs did, and they're the ones that uh, started using a lot of the chili powder uh, in our recipes that we use today in Tex-Mex. But uh, Mr. John, as we called him, uh, was real, I mean, he had a, if you were to see him, he was a big guy, and um, he, had a, a palate for rich foods. And when, when I say rich foods, that meant he had a palate or an, uh, uh, his quality for ingredients was uh, at the top. I mean, he would buy only premium uh, oils, cheeses, and everything like that. So even as I look back at our company, I always uh, uh, remember that. And, and we kind of modeled a lot of what we do because of those early, early experiences and things I saw as a young kid. 
Um, anytime we make an upgrade or make a change, an ingredient change, it's always an upgrade because there's a reason why something costs what it does, and when, especially when it comes to food ingredients. And, uh, you know, a lot of operators strictly buy off price. The cheaper, the better. But uh, when it comes to ingredients, it's all about your yield, and that's what really determines your cost. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that. I was at a uh, meatpacking plant in Pasadena. I did a meat company. I'm sure you've heard of them. And um, we were touring the facility, and we came across this, this uh, drum, this huge drum. And inside of it, uh, there was an ingredient in there, and it looked like uh, dog food. And so I asked the gentleman who was giving us a tour because they wanted to uh, do some uh, uh, process some meat for us, which we never did. But um, he, uh, he said, oh, we add this to so-and-so restaurant. It was a Mexican restaurant chain that every one of you have heard about. And it, uh, what it does, it's a filler that if you add, for example, 10 pounds or 10% to whatever ground beef you're cooking, you're going to yield 110% because it soaks up all the cook-off, all the grease. And so that's the mentality of a lot of operators. Uh, it's not about, it's all about the bottom line. And we've always told ourselves, that, hey, let's just focus on the top of the plate. If we yeah. do that, then everything else will take care of itself. And so, yeah, that's that's how we look at food and the kinds of things that I was exposed to at a very young age that made an impression on me and obviously uh, has been very beneficial to our success. No kidding. No, it sounds like you got some really, really good principles served to you at a very, very early age. It's a, it's a wonderful advantage over so many. Uh, so, so when did it come to you that it was time to put your own idea together? Oh, well, and, well, and how did that first concept come from idea to reality? Well, you know, it's funny how when people see a successful business, they always think that they've always been that way. But um, the, the way we started was like a lot of successful companies. It was almost by accident in a way. So in the early 80s, my father had purchased a building in Pearland on, on, at 2202 East Broadway. And this building, uh, he was approached by Pearland State Bank because one of their clients had, that was operating a restaurant in there called Gregory Steakhouse was already running into financial problems. So uh, they asked my dad if he would consider buying the property, and he did for 330000 and they gave him about 100000 over that in working capital, a remodel, and what have you. So that, that was in El Toro, a family restaurant uh, from about 81 to 86, and um, it never did well. Um, and back then, um, I was, I mean, I, we, uh, weren't as focused on our product um, as much as we are today. But it, we ended up closing it, and my, my father leased it to um, Oak Allison Seafood. And then um, they were there for about three years, and then he leased it to another gentleman, actually did a lease purchase called uh, Mangiafigo's Italian Restaurant. And that was a lease purchase, and when the 60th day after he had opened, uh, the earnest money was due, he got out of there. He was out of there, so the building came empty oh. again. So there's a fourth restaurant already there. And I was running, at the time, our tortilla factory, our family tortilla factory called El Matador Foods in Baytown. And um, I had to cut the check for that empty building every month, and the payment was $48.52.10, $4,852.10 a month. And it was such a difficult payment to make. It's seared, it literally is seared on my brain for eternity. So as I was writing these checks out and knowing that building was empty and and, and and the hardship it was causing on our company, because that was a ton of money back then for us. Uh, I just uh, had a discussion with my younger brother, who owns Johnny Tamales today, and we said, hey, let's, let's go ahead and try to reopen it. 
And I guess going into that circle, under those circumstances, forced me to have a paradigm shift. And it was no longer about making money. It really strictly was about p- producing the absolute best product I knew how to make and offering at the absolute best value that I could. And that's kind of how Gringo's launched. But I do remember uh, the day we opened, January 11th of 93, literally standing there at the window uh, of the dining room that we did not even open because we didn't have the funds to even get that one ready. So we just got the one dining room ready with 25 tables and pulling that string and standing there waiting for that very, very, very first car to pull in the parking lot. And when one finally did, I also remember uh, the feeling I got because it was very real of the gratitude I had for that comp- that car, that, that person that was going to give this building another chance. Here it was, the now the fifth restaurant. So uh, there's a certain appreciation you have uh, when you start that way, and I'm glad I started that way. But um, all along, I've always wanted to uh, create a company that was more about myself and, and more about, uh, or less about myself, but more about others, and a company that was uh, just more than just Mexican food or, or cooking food or serving food. And so uh, about 2002, I, um, I established our core values. And the third one is reinvesting in our associates and team members. And we do it at such a level that uh, I hope and I know we actually have inspired other restaurateurs to start taking notice of their community, taking notice of their, their sure. team members, mm-hmm. their employees, and really up in the game and, and making this all about everyone, not just about the, uh, the operator themselves. But, uh, yeah. So it came from a bil- a, a fifth-time opportunity for a building. Yes. Was the first Gringos. Good for you. Yeah, and thankfully it did work. It turned around. And um, and so then <clears throat> explain to us then how, how you make that determination to take that step now from one restaurant being operated correctly, committed to higher value. You, you raised the level of quality. It obviously, you know, worked. Uh, or there wouldn't have been so, so many later. But then to take that next step to say, I think I got something here uh, more than a restaurant in one location. I may have a concept that I should go do more of. When did that happen and how did that come about? Well, I always knew that one restaurant was not going to be able to provide me the lifestyle that I wanted to ultimately live. So uh, it was going to take more than one restaurant. And uh, our, our first core value is building guest relationships one at a time. And our last one is uh, never being satisfied. So uh, one of the companies that inspired me when I was in my 20s and still does today is the Pappas organization. They're one of the finest operators in town. And, and, uh, and you know, I'm good friends with Chris and I know Harris, but uh, they just do a fantastic job of raising the bar in the city. Yes. And, and, uh, and I think the restaurant scene in Houston is better for it. And so... As when I was working for my father, one of the restaurants he has that's no longer there it was on I-10 East at Mercury, and across the street was a Pappas Seafood restaurant. And you know, back then we were we were just trying to figure out how can we build cells, how can we build cells, and and we always thought if we just do this, our cells would go up. But you know, it's funny none of that ever works. So it's it's really a, a combination of a lot of things. But one of the things that uh, they were doing, they they had these beautiful awnings. And so their sister, Vicki, had uh, Houston Canvas and awnings, I believe, mm-hmm. and a uniform That's company. Right. And so I met with Vicki, and she made us an awning. And, and I remember, this is back in 83, and I remember her telling me, hey, one of my brothers, or my, my brothers, they're opening up a Mexican restaurant. I said, oh, just tell, tell them to come on out. So I had met with Chris. He came out, toured uh, the, the commissary in Baytown. 
but um, it was the first Papacitos on Richmond in '83. In '83. Yeah. So, um, but again, I've always admired them, and I told myself, look, uh, if you have any hope of being anything like them, you have one or two choices. You can either go work for them or hire someone that worked for them. So I chose the latter. So when I was um, working on my second location, I needed a general manager. Mm-hmm. And one of the, uh, the individuals that I knew through uh, my wife's uh, work, she was a, a kindergarten teacher in Pasadena, one of her students, uh, her dad was uh, the general manager of Papacitos. So my wife would come home and say, yeah, I'm one of my students. Her, her dad is a general manager of Papacitos. So that, I always put that in the back of my mind. And, and then I learned that he was no longer with them. He had actually moved to go run the uh, Kima Cantina with Franz Gillibard. And so he opened that store for Franz, and and so our family tortilla factory was delivering tortilla product to um, the Kima Cantina. And so my cousin, who was making a delivery, I said, Chuck, I said, tell Joel Perkins that uh, I'm looking for a general manager. And so Joel uh, called me. We met. Uh, we, I actually interviewed him literally five times, but I didn't have the money to bring him on too soon, so I kept putting him off because the building was under construction. And so Joel uh, was getting impatient with me, and um, some of the things I didn't know about it at the time, I didn't know that Joel had been laid off from Papacitos. I didn't know that he had been relocated and his salary went from 110000 to 30000 a year and his fourth child had just been born. Oh, so wow. our, literally our lives uh, intersected um, at the right time. And I remember uh, Joel telling me during one of the interviews, he said, Russell, if you hire me, I will run that restaurant as if I owned it myself. Well, his first opportunity came in 2000 to franchise the first Gringos, the one there on Fuquay, uh, on 45 at Fuquay. And today, Joel owns five of the 18 restaurants today. Good, uh, good, good, good. And, That's uh, a wonderful he, story. Uh, he thanks me every day, but I thank him because, you know, he was uh, another piece of the, the puzzle of what I visualized a, a beautiful company to look like. And, you know, had you told me that day we had opened at Russell, you know, 27 years later, you're going to have... Uh, soon to be 18 full-service restaurants. You're going to have a couple of uh, one-offs, uh, the Lunchbox, Burger Libre, and we also still own one Burritos today. But had you told me that's what it looked like, I would have thought I was hallucinating. But uh, here we are, and uh, I, I pinch myself every day, and, and let me tell you, it's, it's, um, it's incredible. I mean, I would have never thought I would have a, ch- a general counsel, full-time general counsel, a, a, a CFO, a CMO. My son joined me, who has a uh, MBA from Wharton, and, um, you know, so we, we have a great company, a great infrastructure, and uh, we're positioned to grow, of course, but the biggest challenge today are employees. It's, it's about, you know, finding the, the, the team that can actually open a store and maintain the standards and the culture of the company because um, you can dilute yourself very, very quickly in this industry, and I see it all the time. Restaurants open up, these chains, they start expanding, mm-hmm. uh, they go public, and before you know it, they're retreating. I mean, they're closing stores, and there's a couple chains that I know of, Mexican food chains, that are going to close five units in the mm-hmm. Houston market. Sure. And um, so that's, the, you know, I want to take the approach that uh, In-N-Out took, uh, where um, the founders, uh, the Snyder family, it was all about quality. It was all about maintaining that quality, no matter what size you were, and growing at, at, the, at your ability that you can do it. You bring so, up a great point. Um, you know, particularly a lot of our listeners who are 
uh, starting their first unit and their concept. And, and of course, if they're ambitious, they're thinking, gee, you know, one unit, well, I'd love to have two, three, four, 14 units someday. <laughs> but then, you know, the big question is, and which you're unusually positioned to explain is, how do you know when's the right time to go from one to two? Because from my perspective, going from one to two is a huge deal. Yeah, and it's actually easier than going from two to three. <laughs> so, um, you know, one of the most important things you have to do in this business is make sure you have every system and procedure in place. Uh, you can't grow without it. And, um, you know, we're, we're always evolving. We're always trying to find ways to, to improve. And, but systems and procedures, I mean, you know, maintaining, you know, a lot of people, they'll, they'll go into business because they can make a great whatever. Right. And, and that sounds great, but now make, you know, a thousand of those, you know, every day, seven days a week at 18 different locations. It's not that easy. And so uh, the systems and procedures you have to have in place, the consistency. And one of the things I've done, too, um, I've always tried to look at different companies and, and learn from them. You know, what are they doing well? And, and one of the things, I mean, prime example, um, uh, Larry Forehand from Casa a good friend of mine, you know, um, and he used to work with Monterey House, which had a central kitchen set up. But uh, Larry uh, always packed his spices, had his spices for all his recipes pre-packed. And that's something we do today because yeah. it's so important. Not uh, You cannot uh, free pour spices. You just can't do it. Um, because, uh, you know, people will be inconsistent from cook to cook, batch to batch. And so that's one of the areas where we really, really focus on uh, everything from our different spoons and spoodles and and uh, everything's weighed, everything's portioned. And so, you know, like uh, True Kathy said, you can make a terrible cup of coffee. Just be sure and serve it that way each and every time. So whatever you serve, just make sure you're serving it that way every time. Well, those are two good points so far that hopefully people are making a note of, is that you successfully grow. You already talked about maintaining um, a high level of values and attracting people that fit them. And then, of course, it's all about consistency because I think you're right. I, 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 don't, I can count the amount of people that open and are happy because they open very busy. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take them very long to start seeing that they're not very busy. Explain your theory about opening and, and how you want to keep the momentum going uh, so that you know uh, that you're maintaining consistency. Well, I just know that when we open a store um, in a new market, and although we have uh, a good brand recognition in the city, um, you know, we're still paranoid because within that community, wherever that restaurant is located, Every one of the, uh, the the people that are walking through our doors have already established their Friday night and Saturday night rituals of where they go for whatever food, Mexican food, Italian or whatever. And so you try and change that habit. So, uh, you know, this business, it's really, it's about the, it's about the smallest of details, uh, lighting, um, just the way a person feels when they're sitting down. When we opened up this one restaurant, we noticed um, that our, 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 uh, our benches, our booths, uh, from the table, the edge of the table to the back of the, the, the cushion should be at, you know, they're about uh, 17 inches is, is optimum. But sometimes um, uh, something happened during construction, but to make a long story short, we had some 15 inch booths, which were very, very tight. So we had to do some modifications to fix that. But uh, I'm, I'm real big about lighting, about music. Uh, you know, you, uh, music, for example, should not be coming from one direction. You should not know where the music's coming from. You should, you should just hear it. And um, uh, obviously, obviously, temperature and all that. But 
it's it's you know it's about all the senses, the sights, the the, um, the smells, the taste, the feel, everything. It's so important. This business has really been elevated to levels I've never seen in my entire life, and it's only going to get more complicated. And when you go into a market um, like Houston, especially, uh, it's really hard to wow someone and say, "Wow, look at this place," because there's already a place down the road doing something similar, and and you know, um, and then you know, menus, uh, the menu itself. I've, I've seen restaurants open. And this one particular restaurant, I'm not going to mention the name because you know him and a lot of people do, but he was upset because they were ordering this. Uh, he had just opened, and he's no longer open. He opened about three or four years ago. And um, apparently his guests were ordering this one thing just a little too often. So he took it off the menu. And well, that'll teach him. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you order this so often? Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I see often, too, in this business is people want to be different, which is perfectly fine. But whenever you're trying to educate your, your these patrons walking in your door with your menu and you only want to offer them what you want to offer them and there's nothing there that they're familiar with, you're going to scare them away almost immediately. So I always highly recommend, you know, mix it up. And if you if you're the product that you want them to buy, as opposed to stuff that that's everywhere, um, if if it's good enough, it'll, it'll stay there and they'll order it and they'll keep ordering it. But don't try to be too unique, too soon in this business. Uh, you, I don't think you have the deep enough pockets. So there's there's been a lot of restaurateurs in the city that had very deep pockets. And let me tell you, there's nothing worse than a restaurant losing money because this starts losing it really bad and really quickly. On that's a lot. And uh, it hurts. Well, you just underline that fact, too, that I think successful operators say a lot because they know, they live it, that there's a big difference between successfully entertaining your guest and trying to educate the guest. Um, and uh, the first one seems to be where you, you know, where the guest enjoys being there, bonds with you, comes back. Second one is where you have a good chance of scaring them away. Right. Um, and so, and who wants that? So, yeah, yeah good points. You know, and... Um, Something we did recently, we um, one of the things we noticed for, for one, we when we open a store, we have to staff it with approximately 60, 65 servers. And if you can imagine training that many, not only just interviewing and hiring, but just training them, uh, it's it's a monumental task. And and our poor general managers, um, it's a revolving door. You're always going to have a, a, a certain segment of that. But uh, what one of the things we did to hopefully minimize that as we recently increased our our wages per hour for tipped employees uh, based on tenure and uh, we did it to again uh, entice servers to stay around longer and in some cases I mean we have servers that have been with us 20 years Wow! and so it, it's a career for them but one of the things I saw that didn't just didn't add up to me was that here's a server that's been with us 20 years. We have zero issues with this person. They come to work. They know the menu inside and out. And yet we'll hire someone off the street tomorrow and pay them the exact same wage. And 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 yet they're, they're the ones that going to give us all the problems, the, the new hires as far as challenges and service issues. And so uh, we changed it. Uh, after the first year, it goes to 275 and then 350 and then 425 and then $5 at the five-year mark. And then uh, at the 10-year mark, they get uh, $10 an hour. And I've had several servers come up to me and shake my hand and thank me for that because it was, it's life-changing for them. It's a house payment in some cases for them mm-hmm. in a month. So um, I think by doing that, and I don't know if you knew this or not, but Texas, or not Texas, but 
the United States, the last time the federal minimum wage for tipped employees was raised was in 1991. Yeah, which is a really, long time, two dollars and thirteen cents an hour. You know, it's 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 really ridiculous. And then, uh, believe it or not, there are some other states with higher minimum wage yes, uh, for tipped employees. Mm-hmm. And some of them, I'm embarrassed to say, are twice what Texas is. Um, mm-hmm. Florida, for one, mm-hmm. it's five forty-four. And so, okay, so you know, if the government's not going to get involved, which you know, I don't particularly care for government in our business, but. So and they're not. So it's us doing taking the initiative to be competitive, and at the same time, being offered to uh, being uh, uh, able to you know offer better service, uh, more engaged uh, employees, happier employees, and all that makes a difference uh, for that guest experience. And there's there's nothing worse than getting service from someone that does not want to be there, does not enjoy their work, and usually you don't go back as a result. It it, it really does affect the business. No doubt about it. That's the double loss. Um, uh, We work with many independent operators that are having a hard time sometimes keeping um, the good staff. And you get personnel like you were just describing that you can tell are just uh, not really wanting to do a good job. So that means they don't do a good job. So what happens is... First, it impacts the guest. Secondly, the really good workers don't want to be there anymore. So now you start losing the good staff, and everyone kind of lowers themselves down to the lowest acceptable level to get by. Right. It's a snowball that rolls downhill. So obviously, you've been growing. You've been attracting better. Going back to that point of over 60 people just to be servers to complete the schedule tells me that you've got to be you know, interviewing a couple of hundred people uh, in order to try to get the initial 60. That takes a tremendous amount of time. It's a lot of time, yeah. and, and you don't want your management tied up doing that. You you really want them managing and and right. the operations. Good program. You know, with um, the trend toward third party delivery, and of course the uh, you know grocery stores getting into meals ready to eat. Um, this creating some competition on the food front for us uh, in terms of dine-in um, uh, traffic. Uh, what's what's the key? to keeping, uh, keeping folks dining out. Um, and that's one part of the question. The other part of the question, are you going along with the, the whole third-party delivery trend as well and seeing that as part of your future? Um, bifurcated question, but uh, I think they, they both relate. Well, we are doing <coughs> uh, delivery through third-party. Mm-hmm. We're with DoorDash at our Jimmy Chonga's locations. And we're testing that out. You do have to give up a good percentage of your your price, your yeah. markup to to use our service. But uh, mm-hmm. the the good thing about the delivery service, it's very expensive to do it. I don't know if you've done it, but mm-hmm. I, I I use it at my house where I live, and I've had everything from grottos to uh, sweet greens delivered, and it gets very very expensive. Especially you know you have to tip the driver and all, which sure. is fine. But the beauty of it versus dining out, you don't get a better experience. Um, for having home delivery, you get convenience, but you don't get the actual dining out experience. So, mm-hmm. you, and, and you don't get a value as a result. It's just the value of convenience. So that's a positive uh, for our end. But I don't. I don't know if the, the uh, home delivery service is sustainable at the at the, at the prices that it's costing restaurants because you're almost giving up almost all your profit. And so, uh, something's going to give here soon. I don't know what it is, but it's it's. It's not pretty, for sure. Uh, it's one of those necessary evils. We did it, uh, but now almost 100% of our takeout business is through a third-party company. 
which is sad when you think about it. But um, I, I don't know what the answer is. It's something we're monitoring and, and studying so we can know how to go forward. But uh, hopefully, um, you know, at the end of the day, the consumer is going to win. But we'll see what happens. Are you able to track whether or not you're getting incremental sales and greater visibility, or is it cannibalizing, you know, your dining and takeout? Is a pretty standard question right now. Um, is are you able to get a sense of that with your analytics and so forth? You know, I haven't looked at them recently. Uh, my chief marketing officer, Heather McKeon, uh, is studying that. She's the one that's on top of it, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, I will say that our, fortunately, in, in 2019 or 2018, no, 2019, our uh, all the stores that did have the home delivery, our sales are up. Um, so one of them is double digit, which is really nice. Um, all our gringos are up, uh, uh, 19 over 18, uh, m- minimal, uh, you know, 5%, 4%, but still, at least it's up. We try to do annual price increases of, you know, two or three at the most. Uh, just for cost of goods and increases in other labor uh, mm-hmm. areas, the back of the house and, and management. Now, you've been doing this for a while, and so um, you've seen a couple, at least two, if not three different generations becoming your primary dining consumer. Of course, uh, the, the boomer generation is large, and now the millennials, uh, they are the primary dining consumer. Um, what do you, have you had to do to maybe adapt to the fact that you, your primary consumer is... Well, fortunately, you know, I've seen a lot of brands, um, I don't want to use the word age out, but what you'll notice is some brands, they didn't keep their, their, their company fresh, their menu fresh, their buildings fresh, and they basically just catered to the, the, the same customers all these years, and they're losing them just because there are some of them just passing away and they're not really picking up any newer uh, generation uh, uh, clients or customers. So uh, fortunately for us, we're in the casual dining market. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we're a family restaurant and a lot of the children that grew up eating with us are now coming back as parents themselves and treating their kids. So that's, that's the beauty of our model. Um, a lot of restaurants are not as fortunate to have that, but uh, yeah, we have, um, I mean, there's some, there's some, um, of our corporate office team members that used to eat there as young kids and now they work for us. What do you attribute the brand loyalty to? I mean, that's a pretty broad question, but, um, it's, it's what every operator wants. And I know you're doing a lot of things right, but what, uh, what creates that kind of loyalty cross-generationally? Well, we, again, we've always been very, very, uh, price sensitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, if I go into a restaurant and uh, and I notice that a portion is off, and what I mean by off is um, they didn't serve enough product on the plate, they may have mismeasured or portioned or what have you, I'll get more upset at that than if I walked in and saw them over-portioned because uh, the last thing a guest wants is to feel like they were cheated. So, you know, we've always tried to maintain uh, a consistent product at a consistently good value and we're you know we we're very fortunate because if you if you do that um, and and you can maintain a decent prime cost of you know under 60 percent preferably under 55 but if you can maintain that and do do the kind of volume we do you're going to be very very successful but you know it's it's a catch-22 what drives Mm -hmm. that volume is it is it the price point 
and you know and and of course you know if, if you don't have the volume but you're given a great price point then uh, your labor will not be as productive so that's going to drive up uh, your cost oh, so the, yeah and so it's 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 not easy I'm, I'm, I'm out here saying it's easy it's the restaurant business is one of the toughest businesses to get into it's one of the most toughest business to be successful at and uh, like I heard one time if you want to make a million dollars in the restaurant business start off with two and once you lose a million sell and get out but uh, it's tough I mean it, it really is tough are you a numbers guy um, or do you hire people to uh, dive deep into your cost control and more of an idea guy um, uh, as a guy in charge of the operation uh, uh, how deeply you diving into your financial statements and looking at your cost control and monitoring prime cost, or is that something you hand off to uh, maybe your MBA son? Well, we're doing a lot more of it today than we did, let's say, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. um, just because of the sheer volume that, that uh, one basis point can make in your business. Mm-hmm. So we, um, we are looking at that. My, my main focus myself is always going to be our prime cost, and then I'll let everyone look at the, uh, the manageable items or controllable cost items. Um, so we, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's it's always going to be about making sure you're just getting the best value for what you're serving mm-hmm. and um, and just making sure you're offering it because, um, like I said, the guests don't want to feel cheated. You know, this is such a competitive market. Uh, you're compared to every uh, restaurant down the street and one small comparison we've always done almost since day one is we offer the free salsa or ice cream at, at mm-hmm. the end of your meal and it's it's a point of difference I think um, that's one thing that every operator needs to find uh, I always tell people you know find the best of whoever's doing whatever you want to become and then find a point of difference where you can stand out above that and that's one way to carve a niche into the market but it's all it's all about having a point of difference um, you know I have a lot of ideas I would like to implement even in our own operation but you know we can grow the menu too broad to where it gets more and more difficult to execute and really you didn't really gain anything by doing it. Is that what brought you to not too long ago when you developed a second concept? Yes, Chimichangas. Um, yeah, the because uh, Maybe you could talk about that. Uh, some people may have found it interesting. It's also full service. It's also Mexican. Right. Um, but what was uh, the thinking there, and what's its point of difference? Well, um, there was, again, I, had, I kept this running list of items that I've always wanted to add to our menu at Gringo's. But, again, our, some of our kitchens probably could handle it very well. But there are some that were, were designed way back, and they're just too small. And it's just a challenge to really execute. But, um, yeah, so at Jimmy's, um, people ask me, you know, uh, what's the difference? And I said, well, they're basically, the, they're the same but different. And what I mean by that is, for example, the, the chilling queso at Gringo's is yellow and the chilling queso at Jimmy's is white. And uh, the rices have a different color. One is uh, a yellow saffron-looking rice and the other is your traditional Spanish r- red rice. And so, um, and our chips are different. Um, the, some of the items, entrees on Jimmy Chang's menu uh, and of course, chimichanga is a play on words for chimichanga, mm-hmm. and so we do have chimichangas at uh, chimichangas, <laughs> and we have uh, the stuffed avocado and the ahi tuna salad. Right. Um, just you know, just little things here in the tillery, you know, um, the dirty tostadas and a bunch of little things that that um, that make it fun and different, but still the same. We do have some of the combination plates that are identical, like the Presidenta dinner, which is a very common. Uh, combination plate throughout the industry and so um, we just uh, wanted to do something different and it's it's been fun uh, doing the both brands 
And, and, and then also what it does, it allows us, you know, if we open up a Gringo's in one location and we want to open up near, uh, close to it, it had to be at least, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten miles away at least. So now we can actually position a Jimmy's in between two Gringo's if we wanted to because, uh, uh, because we can. They're, they're a little different. Is there cross-promotion between the two concepts? Yes. Yes, there, there is. We, we actually have a, um, a reward program called the Tex-Mex Insider. And so you can earn points at uh, either one and, and use them at either one. And also our other brands, Burger Libre, uh, The Lunchbox. And uh, so, yeah, people, uh, we're actually exploring uh, a new project where we'll be managing another restaurant because we have the, the ability to do so. And um, we'll see how that goes, but it'll be where we'll be basically the management team of this another brand. I don't want to mention the name right now. Okay. But um, it'll, it's 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 almost identical to a Gringos, for example. Some of our um, guests uh, who are in expansion mode are are doing it kind of an organic manner. They just they're going to let the let the concept uh, have its own life and 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 grow naturally. Are you more of a planner for the next subsequent unit? Or do you take the approach, hey, you know, we'll grow as it seems right to grow? Uh, definitely the latter. Um, you know, we always want to have something in the pipeline. Uh, and I do have two franchisees that uh, can help that growth. Um, you know, our first store opened in 93, our second, 96, and then it was 99, 2000, 2002, 3, 6, 7, and so on. So, you know, we're getting to where we could, we could easily do one, one a year. Uh, we could uh, increase that or move that up to one every nine months, too. So we'll see. We actually have uh, a track of land in College Station mm -hmm. that uh, that's next to the uh, saltgrass and walk-ons that's being built right now. And we actually have a building permit for it. But we, uh, my franchisee pulled the plug on it because it was right when Harvey hit and he had to rebuild his champion store. I mean, it was completely gutted. So that kind of sidetracked them. So, but now that we're doing Katie, we just did New Caney. We're doing Katie. Um, we're looking at College Station very seriously right now. So we'll see how it goes. In terms of national growth, um, you know, stretching out um, beyond Houston and Texas, uh, is that something that uh, piques your interest? You have your eye on, um, or you tend to stay pretty regional? Um, we'll, we'll definitely stay regional. Uh, Texas is a big state. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, no it, it would take several <laughs> lifetimes for me to, to really have a restaurant in every market in, in, in Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, uh, we, we, we want to grow to where, at least wherever we go, our, our brand will be known by someone mm -hmm. and we'll have to start over. I mean, if we were to go from here to Seattle, no one knows Gringos and, and you're going to spend a lot of time trying to build that brand there. So, sure. you know, we would go to College Station. Uh, Conroe is a great market. Uh, Beaumont's a great market. Port Arthur. Um, you know, I don't know if I'd want to go into Louisiana just yet. Uh, they have different issues with labor out there. So, mm -hmm. but, you know, Dallas is the suburbs of Dallas would be great. But if we go into a market like Dallas, we would have to for sure open up, um, you know, three very aggressively very within a very short time frame. That way you could justify having the team out there to run them. But um, we'll see. Um, there's 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 lots of opportunities. I'm a I love second generation properties uh, where you already have the infrastructure of the full service restaurant set up, the bar, the coolers, hoods, the grease trap, parking lot, 
And uh, if all you have to do is go in there and reskin them, you can really come out sure. far ahead. Several of our locations are second generation properties. And let me tell you, they're some of our most profitable ones as well. Mm-hmm. When you consider that uh, continued growth um, as you're ready, as you've got people, systems, et cetera, do you think of that as corporate stores or or additional franchisees or strictly more more opportunity for the two franchisees? You- franchisees you have? Oh, definitely. Just, I probably would not uh, franchise to anyone else except the two existing franchisees unless we were the management team that ran the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Because uh, it it really is difficult for someone to go from zero to 100 and really understand um, everything that it it takes to run these restaurants. It's just not easy. And and, uh, to throw someone in that scenario wouldn't be fair to them and definitely not fair to us. So, um, if, if someone's willing to put up the capital and own a restaurant but managed by our our team, then it's something we would definitely consider. And, and that may be the, the future growth of this industry for that reason. Sure. I know, um, uh, what's his name, the founder of the Four Seasons, that's what he did. Uh, after a few hotels, I mean, you can imagine how expensive it is to build a hotel. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's what he uh, So get investors to get behind it, but you manage the operations. Yeah, they own it, but we just manage it. So and these problems that you you know, want to avoid in your own um, restaurant, is, is that a, perhaps a weakness in the franchise system in general where uh, the, uh, the original franchisor loses control of the quality and culture? Do um, you think that's a, well, it's, a it's pervasive the sheer, problem? It's the sheer complexity of the... Of, of running a full-service restaurant. Yeah. You know, QSR, fast food, all that's so different sure. because your service really stops at the counter for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah. And um, and, you, and that's much easier to manage. But, you know, and then the systems that some of the fast food restaurants have are almost foolproof. So, um, yeah, it's just, uh, there's just so many moving parts. Uh, yeah. I would love for you all to come out to one of our restaurants and, and tour tour the kitchen. One thing we've noticed is, um, and we do, we do this... Um, um, limited time to offer items from time to time, and they're they're real enjoyable. They're good, everything from Mexico City style enchiladas. Do we do tacos up a store recently? And we'll bring them on, see what the the feedback is on them, and and some will roll back in uh, permanently on the menu. But one thing we're noticing is, you know, we we just our our menu uh, requires a ton of prep. Yes. And prep labor. Um, is sometimes just not appreciated, and you can't really charge for it. So it's just uh, our 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 numbers in the kitchen, labor numbers in the kitchen, are getting more and more challenging. And I think even um, what's his name from New York uh, said that uh, uh, Sharp uh, Shake Shack founder uh, Danny Meyer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. So it's just you know it's just getting more and more challenging. <clears throat> so we're, you know we're playing with pennies. People don't realize uh, the pennies we're playing with. And, uh, you know, yeah, I always refer to that one concept we did, the Gringo Seafood Kitchen that we opened up in Stafford right next to our Gringo's Tex-Mex. Uh, we opened it on October 1st of 06 and closed it December 31st of 07. And I refer to it today as my $3.8 million seafood platter because it would have been a lot cheaper for me just to go across the street to Papado and buy a seafood platter and be done with it. But no, I had to open up a seafood <laughs> restaurant, Cajun seafood restaurant, because uh, Gringo's was spelled uh, A-U-X at the end. And so, but we learned a lot. Um, uh, it, one of the things that came out of that experience, because I think within every failure, there's a seat of an equivalent success, and that's what Napoleon Hill said. But basically, when we, um, when we after we closed... Uh, the seafood kitchen, and then a few years later, we launched uh, Jimmy and Changas. We were going through the recipes and and uh, having that 
little temporary failure behind me, I um, it forced me to have a paradigm shift, and it's a real simple one, but I think it's 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 done me well in terms of um, in, in selecting ingredients. And it's basically this: if I won't eat it myself, I won't serve it. So when we were making the recipes for Jimmy's, there was one particular recipe that I wasn't very fond of because I knew how it was prepared, and I said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, let's lose the let's use the better. Uh, ingredient, so we made a change, and and again, that's the way we look at everything now. Um, uh, if, you know, if we won't eat it, we won't serve it. And anytime we make an ingredient change, it's always, always an upgrade. And and uh, you know, the beauty of of improving and getting better and and challenging yourself is your competition has to do the exact same thing to keep up. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they'll fall behind. And um, and that's the beauty of competition uh, of capitalism. So it's just about building the better taco. Well, that also might be the way you're remaining so relevant um, in a competitive, you know, situation. You have been, you know, busy in the 90s. You've been a busy restaurant in the 2000s. <laughs> Here we are, 2020. That's hard your, to believe. Your full intention is to enter, you know, third decade of being a very busy restaurant. Um, and so that's what I would ask you to explain more of is how, how challenging is it and how can you maintain relevancy when you know the customer demand is changing? In fact, some of the customers are totally different. Your, your customer that's going to come in in, say, three or four years may not have even been around when you opened your first one. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know the, the question or the answer, uh, what, what kind of answer you're looking for. But, you know, one of the things we, we really try to do, and I think this is important, um, is not get too fixated on... Uh, external forces, if you will. Um, I like to just worry about the people that open that front door, and that's our main focus and attention. And no matter who they are, how they thought of going there or whatever, they're there. So let's take care of them and make sure they return. And that's really all the power and control we have. Mm-hmm. And and that's all, that's what our our focus should be. And and you know, I I I can't explain why people choose one restaurant over another, but I do know this. When they pull into our parking lot, there were tons of restaurants that they passed up to pull in. And they could have chosen any other restaurant, but they chose us. And to me, that's a huge honor. And uh, you don't want to lose that. You don't want you want to capitalize on that, and you do it by providing them what they came there for. And it's a quality product with a great value and great service and, and a clean atmosphere. And that's all you can do. That's in this business, in, in the grand scheme of things, is very simple. You're serving a plate of food. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not any simpler than that, but uh, it's it's all about everything from the time they walk in to the time they leave. Well put. Yeah, Russell, we uh, we wrap up these uh, interviews um, diving into uh, you know discussion of some of the personal preferences of our guests. Get a little give our listeners a little more idea um, about the things that they like and, and so forth. And so we have this thing called the uh, Fave Five, and, and I'll start off with the uh, first question. Um, what's your favorite go-to food to eat? You know, what's, what's, what's comfort food or? Well, believe it or not, it is Mexican. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I, I don't go to my own restaurant to eat because I cannot relax there. Right. So, I would say so. So my, my, my go-to place, my happy place, if you will, is sitting at the bar at Ugo's. I love Ugo. I love Tracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're such a gem in the city. And so I go there, and I can totally relax and have a fantastic meal. And then also I enjoy Armando's uh, there at Kirby and Westheimer. Armando Palacios, 
does kind of an elevated uh, level of Tex-Mex there. I mean, it's mm-hmm. priced that way, but but the food is really good. He does a great job. So definitely my two favorite places in Houston to go to. Do you get, ever get some inspiration uh, from their concepts? Always, mm-hmm. always. Yeah, always. Mm-hmm. Do you have a best trip or a favorite city, you know, place that you like to visit most? Uh, well, you know, I guess this come, since this coming July would be my fifth trip to um, Pamplona, Spain to run with the Bulls. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I say, know you've done that before. Did I know you've well, done that four times. Believe it or not, I, I was my, the very first time I went was the date was seven seven seven. So my brother in law and brother went, and because of the date, the significance of it, there were so many people there. The festival, the first running of the Bulls, is on the July seventh. So it's on the seventh day of the seventh month, and it's for seven days. So because there were so many people there on seven seven seven, I was in a section of the course that. Uh, was got removed by the police, and um, uh, the, the, they, they kind of just pushed us off to a side street, and they closed the gate, and you couldn't see over the gate. It was probably at least seven, eight feet tall. And uh, the people that were in our group that got kicked out, some of them, which is crazy to think about, but they were throwing wine bottles over the, the fence. And um, sure enough, the police returned with uh, tear gas. Mm. And uh, I had never experienced tear gas before, and hopefully never again. But uh, some in the crowd, because there's people from all over the world, said in English, uh, don't rub your eyes, don't rub your eyes, it'll go away. And it did. So, but yeah, I'll be going back uh, with another group. Uh, what makes the trip really enjoyable is I try to take uh, different people to experience it from our company and, and family as well. But um, yeah, we'll be there this coming winter, uh, this coming July. That's great. Excellent. So you, you already mentioned a couple restaurants that you like to go to for uh, to get some good Mexican food. Um, is there... A favorite restaurant anywhere in the world? You're, you're a traveled guy, so is there some place that you really consider to be kind of the, the best of the best? Well, uh, Carbone at Aria is a fantastic restaurant. I mean, they're based out of New York, but the Italian food they put out is uh, some of the best I've ever had anywhere. Uh, it is incredible. Uh, the quality, the presentation, the vibe, the music, everything about that place is incredible. So I would highly recommend Carbone at uh, Aria in Vegas. Sure. Wonderful. Is there a favorite person, uh, maybe an influencer, mentor, somebody that you that comes to mind that you've you know learned a lot from? Uh, you know, I've learned so much from so many different people, um, and you know, I, you you try to look for people who just inspire you to be better and get better, and and uh, you know. I don't know if I could say person, but definitely company. I mean, Pappas is right up there at the top. Sure. Um, obviously, Tillman keeps inspiring people to grow. Yes. <laughs> uh, he has so many restaurants. I don't know how he keeps up with them, <laughs> to be honest with you. But, you know, he's he's been fantastic for the city. Uh, when I was on the um, – when I chaired the gala for the Houston Restaurant Association in 2004, we honored Tillman that year. And we shot a little short uh, video clip at his corporate offices inside the little uh, museum or whatever you call it there where all his trophies and stuff are at and awards. And uh, I remember shooting it and and saying in that video clip that uh, Houston is lucky that Landry's makes Houston its home because uh, the investments that he's made here now with the Rockets and the the Postal Hotel, I mean, they're they're incredible. Yes, they're, they're, They're simply incredible. And more power to him, and he deserves all the success in the world because he definitely earned it. Um, and it's not easy. I mean, it's. I mean, I, I see the challenges that we have with you know 18 restaurants, but 
He has what five hundred. I mean, it's just it's it's crazy the number of units they have and the things that they have to face daily. I mean, I have one gentleman that works well two now that work in our IT department. I went and toured their their offices and walked. I think it was on the sixth floor, and their IT has a hundred people working. There. Wow. I mean, most of them out in the field that day I went, but it, I thought I was in NASA, a room in NASA. I mean, the computers and towers and everything going on. But uh, I can only imagine what they have to face daily. Um, but yeah. I think I know the answer to this final question based on a conversation we had offline, but I'll, I'll throw it out there. Um, a favorite book or a, a passage that you like to live by? You had shared something uh, uh, I thought was pretty poignant uh, and important about culture. Um, I don't know if that's uh, your answer, but um, but what, what's your uh, what what's well? Kind of things you, live you know, um, for those that don't know, uh, I, I did not go to college. I um, I got married almost a year out of high school. I was 18 when I got married. My wife was uh, very young as well, and um, so I had nothing to really fall back on. Um, I um, had two children by the time I was 25. When I was 26, I lost my house to foreclosure. Mm-hmm. When I was 27, mm-hmm. I returned the vehicle because I could no longer afford the $420.91 payment. You always remember the hard numbers. Yes, you do. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, um, you know, I was trying to find myself. I was trying to succeed in any way I, c- I could. And, you know, when you finally just throw your arms up and say, you know what, um, it's, I don't want to make money. It's not about money anymore. I, I, I can't focus on making money because every time I focused on making money, I never made money. So it was all about, at the end of the day, you know, it's about providing a service or a product that pe- people are willing to pay you to perform. And so the book that probably made the biggest impact on me at the time was The Law of Success and 16 Lessons by Napoleon Hill. Uh, one of the chapters is called Doing More Than Paid For. And he explains why in that chapter. And then the very last chapter, and I think the, probably the most important one, and I think it's it served me well, is, um, well, before, before I tell you the chapter, I, I was one time having dinner with my wife, and, and I was just telling her that, you know, if I had to attribute anything, uh, any, any reason why I'm, a, I'm where I'm at in my life, and I hate to use the word successful, but, uh, you know, I'm getting to experience the great things that I get to do. It's because I've always tried to live my life by the golden rule. And in Napoleon Hill's book, Law, Success, and 16 Lessons, the very, very last chapter is called The Golden Rule. And I didn't know at the time when I told my wife this. And so as, as I read uh, that chapter, uh, I liked how Napoleon Hill presented it. It wasn't, you know, the actions are very, very important, um, you know, treating others the way you want to be treated. But uh, it's really about your thought process and, 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 and wishing people well. You know, um, everything you do and, and, and do to and for another person, you do to and for yourself. And so, um, but but your mind is, is the most powerful part of that, that law, if you will, because uh, I wish the best upon everyone. This includes my competition. When, when Ronnie Killen announced that he was opening a Tex-Mex restaurant in Pearland, where we have three restaurants today, I invited him out. I reached out to him and invited him to my, our restaurant, and I said, you can have full access to anything and everything. And uh, even uh, Cyclonadias was recently purchased by the Dahani Group, which is one of the largest uh, franchisees of Burger King, uh, Popeyes, and and, um, Wendy's. And uh, I I reached out to them through a mutual friend of ours and invited them to our restaurant to come see what we do. And and, uh, and the way I look at it is if they can get better, if anyone can get better in this industry, it's going to force me to get better. And I think we all rise together. So... um, uh, definitely the, the Law of Success in 16 Lessons mm-hmm. by Napoleon Hill, one of the best books ever written. And uh, he's also the one that wrote uh, Think and Grow Rich. And 
and uh, you can find him on YouTube. You can find him anywhere. He's, sure. uh, his, his work is incredible, so I highly recommend that. Good works. Excellent. Great. Good, good works. Good ways. examples. Uh, thank you so much, really, for taking the time, the stories you share, the experiences you've had. Uh, I know every listener uh, can take to heart, can learn something from them, and go be better because of them. And so uh, that's wonderful. So thanks again so much for being here with us no, today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it, and uh, I'm always available uh, to meet with anyone. I always have an open-door policy, so you can reach me. You can go to our Facebook page and probably find me there easier. But it's just Russell Ibarra. So great. Well, thank you. Well, Russell. good. Hopefully they will, and we'd love to have you back in the corner booth. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Hey, thanks for joining us today on the corner booth. Until next time, it's Chris Tripoli and Barry Schuster saying thanks so much. Hope to see you again soon, right here in the corner booth. Till then, go make it a good shift. <laughs>